Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. Uh, I am Jan Diedrichsen. I'm the executive director of Sundance TV and Sundance Now. Welcome to the Sundance TV headquarters. We're so happy to have you here. And you guys are about to uh, enjoy a fantastic panel. I will let our moderator introduce the panel for us. Uh, she is the senior editor of film at The Hollywood Reporter, and she is Rebecca Keegan. Welcome, everybody. So to introduce you to the actors who are with us today, um, we are starting with Zowie Ashton, who's here with a film called Velvet Buzzsaw. She's an English actor and director, and she's a new face to a lot of people in the US, uh, but I think you'll be seeing a lot more of her. Um, next to Zowie is Griffin Gluck, who's here with the movie Big Time Adolescence. You might know, her from just, know him from Just Go With It or American Vandal. He is, uh, I think, the youngest person on our panel. This is his first Sundance. Welcome. Uh, sitting next to uh, Griffin is Rian Barreto, who is here with the movie Cher. She's in every scene of the movie. Also someone who might be kind of a new face to you. She's also in the um, upcoming series Hannah on Amazon. Uh, get to know her. Uh, sitting next to Rian is someone you probably know pretty well, David Oyelowo. You may know him from Selma. Or United Kingdom or King of Katwe. He's here with the movie Relive, which he also produced. Um, welcome, David. Uh, sitting next to David is Jillian Bell. Uh, you, you may know her from Workaholics or 22 Jump Street. She's here with the movie Britney Runs a Marathon. She is Britney. She did a lot of running. You're going to see it later this week. Um, sitting next to me is Jim Gaffigan. You may know him. You may know him best from his stand-up work, which it's weird that laziness is a theme of your stand-up work because you're here with three movies. You seem to be quite busy. Um, the three movies are Troop Zero, Then That Follows, and Light From Light. So welcome, everyone. Welcome to our panel. I want to start off by asking, so who here is at their very first Sundance on the panel? I know Griffin is. We have a lot of folks. So for those of you who've been to Sundance before, what is your one piece of advice for our newcomers? I would say uh, try and smoke crack. <laughs> uh, it'll make you more confident. Um, you'll get along with people. But other than that, 
No, no, don't. We're gonna, we're gonna take. Yeah. David, do you have <laughs> a similar piece of advice, having been to many Sundays? Um, I'll, I'll just uh, jump on the end of that and yeah. say uh, thermals. Thermals. Uh, I'm wearing some now. I'm nice and toasty, and I feel lovely. Right. Right. Or, or long underwear, as Americans. Oh, that. Yeah. As we call. Oh, yeah, I see. Yeah. Long I, underwear oh, is, is ooh, a good yeah. tip. Oh, nice. Nice. Very good. Um, to start off, a question about how you decide what kind of projects you'd like to do. Um, for some of you on the panel, you have been doing this for a while and you have some options. For other people, you're sort of just sort of breaking in. When you're looking at a script, Jillian, let's start with you. What makes you great? What, what makes you um, look at a script and say, okay, this is something I want to sign on to. I want to get aboard. Uh, this was my first real drama. And, or dramedy. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like anything I've ever done before. I usually do comedies playing insane women, which I love. Mm -hmm. uh, but this one had a lot of heart and I related to the character a lot. And I just thought it was a beautiful script. At first it terrified me. <laughs> and then I read it a couple more times and I was like, I really want to do this. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough to get to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, Zowie, I remember when you and I were talking upstairs, you said you had kind of decided that you were going to not act anymore. You were maybe interested in directing when you got this role in Velvet Buzzsaw, which brings you here today. Yeah. So what, tell us a little bit about that and, and, and what was going through your mind when you read that script and thought about that film. It was one of the best scripts I've ever read, hands down. I, the reason why I wanted to maybe stop acting is I started when I was six. So this is my 28th year as an actor. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you. Um, so uh, externally, I'm a newcomer, but internally, I'm very much ready for someone to throw me a retirement party. Um, so it, it was just, I just had a moment where I just thought directing is what I want to do. Uh, if I'm not going to Sundance Film Festival with films, then I should just direct. And then this script came across my path, as is always the way, usually, when you have decided to step away from something. Something very magical sometimes happens. And Dan Gilroy has just written something so strange and funny and uh, complex about the relationship between art and commerce. It was, I just couldn't put it down. It, it was so... Um, it, it was so visceral, the experience of reading it, which I'm terrible at reading scripts. Like, I would read the script for friends and be like, it'll never work. 20-somethings <laughs> in a flat, ah. um, But reading this, I just knew that I just, I knew that I was coming back into the, the game if I'd got the role, and I, and I got it, so I'm here. Griffin, kind of like Zhao, you've been acting, you're sort of transitioning now from being a child actor yeah. to being a grown-up actor. It's a, it's a, is considered a grown-up, that's crazy. Yeah, well it is actually, <laughs> technically, literally it is. Um, <laughs> so, uh, what went into your thinking in Big Time Adolescence? What was that casting process like? Um, it was, well, first off, as soon as I read the script, it was sort of the same sensation where it was like, I couldn't put it down, and uh, Thomas, my friend who's actually sitting right here, I've been working with him forever, and he was attached to the project, and that kind of sweetened the deal. Um, the director, Jason, fantastic guy. It was just kind of like the dream project. It was everything I wanted to do. It was something new, something challenging, something I hadn't done before. So, I mean, how could I say no? I was like, please. 
Rianne, yeah, I know in, in the case of your movie, that was this really long casting process for it um, that started in the US. Your English, ultimately the director, found you and you guys end up shooting in, in Canada. Can you talk to us a little bit about your casting process on that movie? Um, yeah, well, I, you, I, I just kind of left school um, thinking I'm not gonna work ever. <laughs> and then I got this email and it was like, filming in New York, girl is like lead role. And I was like, no one's gonna watch this. No one's gonna press play. Um, so I did it, sent it out, and then I had to do it again the next day and then Skyped, and then I, she mentioned improvising in the Skype. We talked about food a lot, but improv came up. And um, so I improvised a scene and sent it to my agent, like, if it's good, send it. If not, don't, because that's dodgy. Um, <laughs> and then afterwards, she flew to meet me, and then we just ate fish and chips and watched like great films and heard nothing. I thought maybe I just made a friend. And, and, then, and then she called me at 1 a.m. I came down from Manchester from an audition that I didn't get. Um, and I was like, yeah, let's talk about The Shining. Um, and it ended up being her telling me that I got the role. And I couldn't sleep because I was scared that if I woke up, it would be a dream. Um, so yeah, that was crazy. But yeah, really good. Um, so when, when you say press play you mean press play on your audition that you had put on tape yeah which is kind of weird because the film's about videos so that's yeah it's interesting it's, it's interesting how much of sort of i think people's popular idea of auditions is actors showing up at a place and reading but that's really not how people do it anymore is it mm. is everybody putting everything on tape now when yeah. they do it and is what david you're making a face is that not how you do it <laughs> Um, no, I mean, uh, I, I'm, I'm about to direct a film, and a lot of that's how it starts. You know, right. you get you get the tapes come in, and you know, for me personally as an actor, it's the the most traumatizing thing is watching mm. other people's auditions because literally the challenge I set myself with auditioning is that I will audition so hard and get so many roles that I never have to audition again. <laughs> I only want offers because it's such you put yourself out there in such a a huge way and so now that I'm watching auditions of other actors I'm just but they're so good and I want to just say yes and next oh, and, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm awful I'm awful I'm awful you know so, 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 so traumatic when did you as I mentioned you produced the film that you have here at Sundance when did you start producing and why um, well, basically, for, for me personally, and it goes back to why I choose the roles I do, I want to be scared, I want to be challenged, and the truth of the matter is that I want to play roles that defy the expectation and anticipation of who and what someone like me should get to play, or has get, gotten to play historically. And I mean that as, as, a, as a black man living on planet Earth. And so. Um, a lot of the time, the material I would get, certainly earlier on in my career, was exactly what I didn't want to do. And so producing um, was born out of the necessity of knowing what I wanted, not getting it um, coming through to me, or, or getting those roles, and so therefore needing to create them. And um, what started to happen after a while, which is how Relive came into my world, is I bored people enough with saying, scare me, scare me, scare me. 
and with the fact that bring me things that, you know, I, I read this thing that was formative for me when I was younger, which was Denzel Washington, early in his career, said to his agent, send me everything that Harrison Ford is turning down. <laughs> and he kind of built the beginning of his career on, on that. And that just goes to tell you the kind of roles a black actor was getting then, and certainly was the case for me. And Relive was set in Ohio, written as a white guy, you know, nothing to do with someone who looks like me. And when, I, when it was sent to me, it scared me because the premise is incredibly layered. But also, you know, when it was going to be me, I said, let's shoot this in LA. We ended up shooting it in South Central. And the cast is far more diverse than it would have been otherwise. And that's something else that is a, a big priority of mine, is making sure that the world in the films that I do as a producer and an actor looks like this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, one area where David's been really ahead of the curve is in working with female directors who are still really in, in small number, unfortunately. And it's interesting to see that that's still the case after we've talked about it in spaces like this for a long time. Um, what is the role, and this is for anyone, what is the role for an actor in conversations like that about inclusion? What, what can you do? What do you do? If anyone wants to tackle that, mm. anyone have? Well, I would say, similar to David, I, um, I look for roles for white guys, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, <laughs> there is, you know, the inclusion, it's interesting, you talk about female directors, but I would say of the last seven films I did, Five of them were female directors. So, uh, and so that's, in some ways, that, that's, that's more uh, the norm for what I've encountered. Yeah. Uh, but, I, you know, in talking about uh, inclusion, I don't know, it's weird because obviously, you know, uh, I did this film, Them That Follow, which is, you know, an, uh, you know snake healers in Appalachia that really doesn't, you know, it has to be kind of like poor white people. You know what I mean? And then if you look at uh, what's so great about Troop Zero, which is something that has this, the, the cast is very diverse, but it's almost, I mean, this might be my takeaway. I feel like the film is a commentary on class mm -hmm. as opposed to, um, you know, races involved in everything in America. But it's, so like that was, again, directed by Bert and Bertie, two women. So it's, you know, the, the inclusion, it's weird, because that's all I know is this, uh, maybe because I've only gotten jobs for two years, but uh, <laughs> is, is the inclusion. But, uh, well, that's, that's great to hear. One thing um, that a lot of you have in common on this panel is that you have live experience, either as a stand-up, in Groundlings, doing theater. And I'm curious, what do you think that, helps you with when you get to a film set? Maybe, Jillian, you can talk a little bit about coming from the improv world. You know, usually the films I do, like I said, are comedies. So uh, they look for that. They're hoping for you to come. And we usually do the scene two times as is. And then you, they just let you run and improvise a ton. And I do love that. And this was the first film where I didn't have that as much. You know, the director. Uh, is also the writer, and he was like, I think it'd be interesting to try to just 
stick to the script. And if there's anything where we feel like, <laughs> and I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Um, no, no, but it was a beautiful script and I was almost scared to improvise yeah. in that scenario because he had written her so well, he, he knew her personally. It was based off of a real uh, woman mm -hmm. um, who was his best friend and roommate back in the day. So um, for this, it was the first time I was sort of just like, I, I was sort of stripped from that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I actually really liked it. I thought I would be terrified because, you know, if you're so comfortable in something, I'm so used to being comfortable going and improvising and if the cameraman's shaking, you know you're doing a good job. Mm -hmm. But with this, I was like, "Are we? was it good? <laughs> like you're crying, yeah. you're like, did we do it? Did we get it? Yeah, no. Uh, so yeah, I had to rely on the director a lot. Is that, Jim, I mean, well, when... You know, I think uh, doing comedy or even doing a live performance, obviously there's no fourth wall, but uh, you know, the three films I have here are dramas and uh, I, I don't know. I think that uh, doing a comedy is fun, but uh, it's not the same concentration that's required in a drama. Whereas, like when you're when you're doing a comedy, we're horsing around. You know, the camera guy is, you know, laughing. You know, whereas in a drama, you're like, you know, you're involved with the crew, and there's almost kind of you're dealing with this moment of grief, and they're they're respectful of the grief that you're going through, but it's hard to measure it because as comedians, you're spoiled by feedback. Mm -hmm. right. Particularly with live performance, there's the immediate feedback. Mm. So, but I love the dramas. You know, it's, I find it more rewarding, actually. Hmm. Sawa, you've done a lot of theater and you also, I know, have done some like poetry slams and, yeah. and similarly, in an environment where you get a lot of audience feedback, what yeah. do you bring from that when you're doing a film or a TV show? I think the main thing that live performance gives me personally is this, uh, you, have, you have to work from the inside out rather than the outside in. When you start doing film, you realize just how many departments there are who are gonna make you look amazing. There is a whole video village, like there's a DOP who's gonna make things look exciting and dynamic and there's hair and makeup and wardrobe and sparks and, uh, and there's people doing so many different incredible jobs to build the whole picture that you kind of enter into when you start the job. You know, people have been going for months usually before you arrive on film. Um, and I feel like sometimes that can get me into a habit of being a little more self-conscious. You know, what's the shot? What am I doing? How am I lit? Um, uh, 10 different things, you know, where, where am I looking? Am I looking at this tiny bit of green tape over plastered on a wall rather than someone's face? Okay, I'm gonna try and invent that person from, from my imagination. Whereas in theater, as soon as you walk out on that stage, it is so bald and it is so raw. If you don't have a character, you will just, you will just fall over. Mm. Like you'll just be like a cardboard cutout. Mm. You'll just go like that because there's no frills. And so it's always like really delightful when you go maybe from doing a play and you've worked a character so much from the inside and you know everything about them, you know their past, you know their history. And then you go into a film where the pressure's off a little bit, but you still have all of that bubbling inside. I always find it really um, 
really satisfying when I go on a film set and I'm still working that that character muscle mm. rather than getting involved in all the other stuff, which, you know, is brilliant, but it, you can find yourself sometimes acting from like the navel up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that's just me. Maybe I'm just a very lazy actor. <laughs> no, well, let's talk about finding a character. Uh, Rianne, I know that for your film, you play an American teenage girl. You're English. She's a basketball player. Did you play that? No. We don't have it. We do netball. Netball. Which is not basketball. <laughs> you don't move when you have the ball, so it's very different. Um, but I did tell them, I was a bit sneaky. I was like, yeah, I'm familiar with balls. I did netball. <laughs> and it, and it, <laughs> it came out really wrong. <laughs> but it's very, that, got you the that was really, <laughs> that's not a good, yeah, that was bad. But, um, clickbait. Yeah. <laughs> You've just outed me. <laughs> um, so yeah, I can't remember the question because I. Well, <laughs> finding your character. Yes. Was it helpful to you as you were trying to figure out who this girl is and how you were going to play her to learn to play basketball, to master the accent? Were those part of the things that helped you? Right. Yeah. Because yes, um, it's weird. Like I would watch Hollywood Reporter roundtables to prepare. While I was doing press-ups and playing basketball, I would like listen to the American accent more than I'd hear my mum talk to me or like my siblings, because I don't leave the house. Um, <laughs> so it was a lot of listening to like my favourite murder and like like crime podcasts. Um, because my character, oh, I don't want to spoil anything, but it was just more about realising what I'd lose as an American than than what actually happens, because I just had to with film it's very different i had to i only could know what the video looked like when we'd done the shoot of the video and nothing had happened until i stepped onto that set so i couldn't prepare in that way and also the director asked me not to to just learn an american to be american which i'm very much not <laughs> uh, well you fooled me you did i did Yay. thank Good you <laughs> um uh, griffin in your film you play a kid who's kind of going through a transition where he's realizing someone he looks up to is maybe not someone he should look up to. Yeah. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about how you got to know this character and sort of start to understand him. Um, well, I had a lot of conversations with the director, uh, Jason, about this. And him and I got along. He answered like every question I had. And for me, it's just useful to know everything you sort of can um, and get in that headspace. But I could also see a lot of myself in the character, which I find a lot of the times helps a lot, because then you can kind of draw from somewhere more personal. And um, it's kind of fun to you know, imagine your life. If it wasn't the same and it was like this, how would it be? And then that's sort of where you know, you draw, I, or me personally, I draw things from. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, I kind of forgot the question. I'm running off two hours of sleep, <laughs> that's so okay. sorry. You're doing great. You're doing great. Thank you. Um, well, you mentioned the conversations you had with your director. I'm curious. Yeah when you are talking to the director and you're not on the same page, maybe you get a note that doesn't make sense to you, mm. how do you handle that? Does anybody have experience with that and, and sort yeah. of how yeah, do I mean, I think uh, for me personally, uh, you know, be, because I had the opportunity to have my own show where I was an executive producer and I had been on the other side of, uh, you know, watching auditions and uh, having people question uh, something in this in the script I was very um, 
aware of the value of showing up and being a good soldier on a film set and uh, also being flexible because I, I was shocked when I was on the other side as an executive producer, some of the demands or some of the unnecessary stubbornness. So I was, you know, I think it's so fun to discover a character or the, to understand some of the motivations because often the, the uh, director, you know, has written the script and sometimes they've thought of stuff and sometimes they haven't. But I think it's the, the actor's responsibility to, you know, to, you know, you, to be a good soldier, mm -hmm. you know? And that was something I learned from having my own show, but, uh, so I don't know. So I, I'm kind of like- So you roll with you, it, you take I, I, I think you gotta, you know, you can have the debate, but in the end, it's the director's call. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. David, what do you think, since, you, you know, you're gonna be in that position of directing, what do you, how do you feel actors and directors best communicate? Well, I, I, I completely agree with Jim on that. I think our, our job as actors, and, and I really learned this in the theater, is to serve the character, serve the director, serve the audience. You're there as a servant, really, which is probably not a very popular thing to say <laughs> as, a, as, a, as an actor uh, in Hollywood. Um, but, uh, but, but that is actually the job. Now, having said that, there have been instances for me where you can tell a director is at sea and they are lost, and maybe they have stuff going on politically, the money's fallen out, or whatever, and as an actor, you feel the need to protect yourself, and it's the worst thing you can mm. possibly have on a film, where you feel like, okay, I've just got to survive this without looking bad, mm -hmm. and that, that hasn't happened many times in, in my career personally, but th there are instances where it's, it's a miracle every time a film actually comes together, gets made, is actually makes sense, and then an <laughs> audience likes it. Um, yeah. um, and so, well, you think of all the mitigating factors. So, you, you know, sometimes that, that, that does happen. But going back to what we were talking about with theatre, I, I, I truly believe that that is, you know, even in this room now, there is something happening energetically between us and you that a different group of people, it would be a different energy and there would be a different atmosphere. And so you personally, I've learned in the theater to respond to that, that there are things that are going to happen by me being attentive and open and responsive and in a place of service to this. And a director who understands that, that's where the real, in my opinion, magic happens. So you're Performances that have surprised me have been when I've had a director take me to places I didn't anticipate, I didn't see in the script, um, and then you watch the film, and then an editor comes in and puts it together in ways that you also didn't anticipate, and they make you look way smarter than you actually are. So, you know, giving yourself over to that process can reap beautiful dividends. Mm. When did... Uh each of you know that you wanted to be an actor. What was the moment that you said, this is the gig for me? Hmm. I can go. Yeah. Oh, you about to go? Oh, good. No? Okay. Um, <laughs> I, in um, England, we have like year six leavers productions, and my sister was the lead of that production. And somehow I got my hands on the script and like younger years play chorus, like opera singer number six and hmm. orphan number five. Um, and I'd learnt the whole script somehow as a child and someone went on holiday without telling the school and then the school went into meltdown, frenzy, like what are we going to do? Um, and I stood up and was like, I know the script. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> and then I just got on stage and was loud. And I think, at, like, when you're 11, any parent that can hear is like, she's, she's, she got something. <laughs> Where it probably wasn't a good performance, but I was just very shouty. So um, <laughs> I think that feeling of just like, I could do anything on this stage right now, um, but I'm gonna obey the words. It was like this freedom to play in this kind of playground mm. um, that was very exciting for me as an 11 year old, so mm. yeah. What about you, Jim? Oh gosh, I, well I was, I remember being in this restaurant, Chicken Unlimited. <laughs> uh, Wait, that's a real? It is a real place. Name so. of a restaurant? Yeah, Chicken Unlimited. I don't think it exists anymore. I was six, I was with my brother and my mom and we had just seen a movie and uh, my mom said, what do you guys want to be when you grow up? And my brother said, I want to be a helicopter pilot and I said, I want to be an actress. And, <laughs> And so, but I always wanted, but it was growing up in a small town in Indiana, it was such a pipe dream. It was such a, you know, my family had just finally gotten to the middle class. So like saying I wanted to be an actor was the equivalent of saying I wanted to be an astronaut. It was right. just absurd. Right. So, but uh, that was, then I eventually learned that I wanted to be an actor. It takes a lot of courage to declare it, depending on where you're from and, and what your family's expectations are, I Absolutely. think. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a huge amount of freedom to it, especially when you're a child, because you're, you know, you're bursting with imagination anyway. And then you get to play these characters, and you get to go to these places. And for me, I, you know, I did a play when I was quite young, and uh, my mom came to see it. And there was a scene in which I had to kiss this girl. And my mom, from the audience, went, David. <laughs> <laughs> in the middle, I was like, put her down. Put, ah, put, that, eh, put her down. Now, and I, I sort of looked over my shoulder, and I had to keep going. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> it was so liberating. That it was like the only time I could disobey my mom. And, <laughs> so, um, so, yeah. Not quite Chicken Unlimited. But, but similar, yeah. very similar. <laughs> Jillian, what about you? Did you have a sort of moment where this I just became clear to you? I always wanted to be an actress. I, I love making people laugh. I love making my family laugh, doing weird bits. My sister and I made home videos from such a young age. We made Mannequin 3. Mm. <laughs> it's real weird because <laughs> my sister's the love interest for me. <laughs> but like I had a hat on, a very large hat, and I was supposed to be like, my love. And I go to kiss her and I just tilted the hat towards the camera so it looked like we were kissing. And I go, you could hear me whisper, how long do we do this? <laughs> because I hadn't been kissed yet, but I just, I loved it. I moved to LA when I was 18, which thank God my parents let me. And I auditioned for a, my first audition was a Kelly Osbourne music video. And I was like, I'm never coming back. <laughs> I want to do this with my life. I didn't get in the music video, but my dreams did not die there. They didn't, good for you. Um, one thing that's interesting about the films that are represented here is that they're from a range of distributors, um, some looking for distribution, some are streamers, some are more traditional. And I'm curious, from the standpoint of an actor, 
Do you think about how the movie will be watched? Does it matter to you whether it's a theater or someone watching at home? Griffin, you're shaking your head. What do you think? Well, to me personally, I mean, no. Because Big Time Adolescence, when I went into that movie, it had pretty much nothing attached. It was an indie film that wasn't guaranteed to go anywhere. And uh, finding out we made it to Sundance was like the biggest deal to me. Um, and I, have, I still have no clue where it's going to go. Where should, I mean, yeah, that's uh, one of the acquisitions. It's titles. one of the acquisitions. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of exciting, you know? If you love the script, and um, it's, which I did, and the script was such a passion project, um, it doesn't really matter, to me at mm -hmm. least, mm -hmm. because you get to have fun doing it, and then people get to see your work, which is just the best feeling ever. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, unless they hate it. <laughs> <laughs> David, what about as a producer, how do you evaluate these? I wish options? I was still like you. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. I don't care where it goes. Let's see. Let's have fun. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, so lovely. Um, I really care where it goes. Yeah. Um, no, no, the, the truth of the matter is we are at a, an amazing time in our business where there are so many ways to watch content. There are so many ways to find films. You know, I've had films that didn't do so great theatrically but did huge streaming. And you go all over the world and people have seen the film. And at the end of the day, that's what you want. Now, I'm not going to lie and say everyone doesn't want the brass ring of, oh, it did that at the box office and all that kind of stuff. Because as a producer, that's what enables you to do another one and mm -hmm. another one and another one. Maybe do them on a bigger scale, you know. So, but at the end of the day, the dirty little secret as an actor is that you just want to tell stories. You just want to be moved and hopefully that moves other people. Mm. And the more you can get back to that, the greater the chance you actually do that. Our business is very bad at, at nurturing that, mm. but I do think some of the new uh, places that are putting work out have figured out that to nurture artists, to enable them to have creativity and let them go do their thing is actually creating better work. And that's an amazing thing for us as actors, producers, directors, and writers. Yeah, yeah Jim, how do you look at it? Well, I think it's, it depends on the, the situation and the project. I mean, I personally, um, my, for me as an actor, I feel like I've spent the last 20 years attempting to prove that I can act. So it does really matter where it goes and if people see it. So uh, whether it ends up on a streaming service, it also depends which streaming service. Because one of them, which starts with an A, has a big theatrical release. So that's different from it just ending up on their streaming service immediately. But I don't know. For me, I feel like I'm always attempting to uh, prove that I can act. As a comedian, uh, working against that kind of um, uh, perception, and so I, you know, I want movies to come out. I also want them on airplanes because I travel so much, and that's when I get to consume things. So I'm like, get it on an airplane because even if it's on Netflix or Amazon Prime, it's like people have to make a commitment to look for it. Whereas when you're on an airplane, it's right there, and you're like, all right, I want to watch this. Mm. It's interesting to hear you say that you've spent these years proving that you can act. What, what does that look like for you? Well, look, I'm very grateful uh, to have the, but I've also been doing this for so long. And uh, I was in a film, I think it was in Tribeca in 2005, that 
which was um, Great New Wonderful, which was a drama. And uh, Tony Shalhoub was in it, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and it was, and I was like, finally, I've proven that I can act. And it, it was bad timing. It was about 9-11, the year after 9-11, and essentially people were like too soon. So it got buried. And so proving that I can act, that's why I'm so excited for people to see Light from Light or Trip Zero, because selfishly as an actor, I want the great roles. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I want, that's why I care whether they're released in a, a theater or on a mm. streaming service. Eventually, I would definitely want them on a streaming service. It's such a, a balance between art and business, what you guys do for a living. Um, Jillian, how do you sort of think of those two things in your head when you're mapping out your own career and your own sort of ambitions? What does that look like for you? It's tough. I, I feel like, uh, I'm going to say with age, but I'm, you know, I don't mean it like I'm some old woman, but I, I, I'm, I feel like I've been more like, what do you want to do? Like, what is it that you want to put out there? What do you want, hopefully, people to remember you by? Um, and it ranges from this character that I just did that completely changed my life to, like, playing a witch in a movie. Like, I would love to do that. You know, I want to play someone big and bold <coughs> and fearless and just funny, powerful women. And, and being able to do this drama, I, I hope it gets to change my career a little bit and opens it up uh, to more opportunities. That's what I'm hoping. But yeah, you constantly have to think, like, what, what will anyone want to see me do? And usually it's the same type of thing you've already done. Mm -hmm. And it's about trying to be smart and not always choose that, because it is easy to do. Um, and just looking for things that change up the path of your career. Mm -hmm. What was it about, you said playing Britney changed your life. The actual playing of it, what was it? One, doing a drama, getting mm -hmm. to do that. Um, I didn't know, to be honest, if I would like it. I've, I've always been scared of it, mm -hmm. and I really enjoyed it. It's so different, like you said, yeah. and um, rewarding. Uh, but I also, for the film, like they did not ask me to, but I wanted to do the journey of the character, and throughout the film, she loses 40 pounds. Mm -hmm. So I did that, and it was physically very challenging. Yeah, I bet. Um, but I wanted to be able to say I, I did as much as she did during the film and, mm -hmm. and relate to the character, because I already did on such a base level. Mm -hmm. um, and just doing something sort of, uh, empowering and challenging, mm -hmm. mentally, physically, and definitely emotionally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I think we have time for some audience questions. Um, I don't know if folks, are they, do they get brought a mic or how? Yes, there's a gentleman with a mic right there. And there's a question right there next to the podium. Thank you. Hi, uh, Mr. Yellow, I had a question for you. Um, my name's Alexander. I'm an acting and filmmaking student out in California. And I was wondering, when you said you go for these like roles that scare you and challenge you, um, like what's your method for getting into these characters? Is it like committing to a specific generative action and taking, like seeing where that takes you? Or is it more of like a, a technical route, um, like through methods and just? Well, it, it, it all depends on what the character is demanding of you. I mean, obviously, it starts with reading the script and does it speak to me? Is it something I've, like you said, is it something I've done before and I want to do something different? But normally, it, there is a connection, a deep spiritual, emotional 
visceral connection to it. And then it's about if the filmmaker sees it in the same way. You know, a, a for instance, is with Relive, the film that I, I have here, Jacob Estes and I just saw eye to eye in terms of what we were trying to do with that film. Incredibly challenging. Um, you know, it, it deals with different timelines and things like that. But, you know, one of the things as an actor you really have to do is chart the emotional arc of the character. Mm -hmm. Could we do that when timelines are jumping all over the place? And in a satisfying way, one of the, and what I was alluding to earlier in terms of places that are really nurturing artists, Blumhouse is a place, because they make films that are at a certain lower budget, it just means they, they allowed myself and Jacob and Storm Reed and Michael T. Williamson, we just had time to play and really <coughs> dig deep with the characters. And that's not a luxury you have everywhere. Um, and then, you know, I was playing a detective from Compton in, in South Central LA. So I went and spent a lot of time with the detective doing ride-alongs, finding out the, just the psyche of someone who does that job day in, day out. For me, I have to leave no stone unturned. You know, I don't, I don't sound like someone from South Central LA, so what I tend to do is I find someone who is like the character or is from the place that the, my character's from, I tape them, I speak to them, I bug them, I, you know, I want to hear as many, and I have to get them to the point where they relax. So they're not talking to David the actor, but they're talking to a friend or someone who they can just throw in colloquialisms, and I tape it all. Sometimes they don't know I'm taping them. Um, um, but it's whatever you need to do for that character. For me, it's about going to the wall, going to the mat, borderline killing yourself to tell the truth, because that, again, is serving the character and serving the audience. So whatever that, uh, that character is demanding of you, whatever that director is demanding of you, you have to do it, because it is such a privilege to get to tell stories, especially with film, to potentially millions of people. I take that very, very seriously. And so, you know, you will really struggle to outwork me. But you can try. Thank you. What is the... What is the craziest thing anyone on this panel has ever done to really understand a character that you're playing? Ooh. So many crazy things. <laughs> <laughs> too many. Any you can share? <laughs> I think what, one time I, I had to, what, a weird thing happened. I thought I had stopped digging for answers for a character, and actually I'd been digging so much that it, it, I was just becoming the character without really knowing. So I did a film um, years ago, it's on Netflix still actually, called Dreams of a Life, about uh, a, woman, a, a real life woman who went uh, missing in London. She died and she wasn't discovered for three years. Um, she had family, she had friends, and, and when she was found, the TV was still on. It had been like over three years. So I had to really get into the headspace of someone who is extremely potentially reclusive. Mm -hmm. And so, I do, you, you know, you just lock the door, like you said, just don't go out much, or, you know, turn your phone off, don't see people. I kind of just tried to get into this very reclusive headspace, and then suddenly, I was just not going out. <laughs> or, like, suddenly, like, people would call me, I'd be like, ooh, wh whoa, why are they calling me? <laughs> you know, whoa, mum, all right, calm down, you know. And people were like, well, where are you? What are you doing? So uh, sometimes you scratch a little... <laughs> something inside yourself in order to get into the character and it, it just keeps gushing without you really 
knowing. So I think that's, for me, not necessarily the craziest thing I've ever done, but definitely the thinnest mm. the membrane has got between me and, and me and the character. I thought I was in control, but I wasn't. I think that's the price you have to, you have to pay because that, the, the camera is so intrusive um, and, and will glean any truth. I, I had a similar experience in a film I did called Nightingale, where I played a guy with dissociative identity disorder. So he had seven characters that would emerge at different points, depending on what trauma was being triggered or whatever. And I have four kids and a lovely wife, and I decided I don't want to be around them while I have seven different characters <laughs> <laughs> bumbling around in my head. So I, I, I lived in an apartment on my own for, for three weeks, and I never spoke in my own accent. And I similarly lost a sense of myself. And when I, it took me a long time to let go of that once I was back with my kids. And it wasn't until when my daughter said, what's wrong with daddy? <laughs> that I, I went, okay, I'm bringing my work home. Um, so, but, but when I watched, the, 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 the reason to do that is that when the camera rolls, I think as an actor, where you want to get to is where you don't question your choices. Right. Yeah. Where you literally are not in your head because you're, You've got these cameras. You, that's, that's the danger anyway. But if you can literally be in the place where there's not a choice I'm making that I question, mm -hmm. and then when you watch it, you know, the things I'm most proud of, I go, whoa, ah, something was going on mm -hmm. then that is not going on now. Mm -hmm. I think that is the price. Yeah. Jim, I mean, you also have kids to go home yeah. to when you're done shooting. How do you deal with this issue of leaving a character at work and coming it's, home and being a dad. Yeah, it's really absurd because you, uh, you, know, you have to like the character you're playing and you have to justify all of their behavior. And so I remember I was working on this film, American Dreamer, which where I play a rideshare guy who eventually kidnaps a drug dealer's baby. <laughs> and I had to rationalize it in my head. And I remember we were done shooting a scene and I was talking to the producer and I was kind of describing how like, yeah, you know, like a lot of people would kidnap a baby. <laughs> and he was looking at me like, no. But as an actor, you have to justify things because when the camera is there, you can't be commenting on it. And so there were moments, particularly with that character in American Dreamer, where I did horrible things, but I had to go into the logic of, yeah, uh, you know, this guy's entitled to do this. And so that's one of those things where you, you don't go home talking about that with your six-year-old. Well, it raises an interesting question about, um, too, I think, managing work and life when you're an actor. It's a, it's a job that calls for you to travel a lot. It's, you have to be sort of very flexible to other people's schedules and needs. So how do you balance, whether it's having a family or uh, your other relationships or your health and well-being, how do you sort of make space for those things when you're completely surrendering to this all-consuming and exciting career? Does anybody? Sometimes I'm, you don't. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you don't. Just, but, but, I mean, that's something you have to look in the mirror about, you yeah. know? Um, uh, you know, sitting next to Griffin here, you know, like you were saying, David, when you're younger and coming up through the <coughs> industry, and especially in the film world, they don't tell you there's no aftercare. Like I thought there was, like especially when you do a film, you become close to people, maybe the director, the, the fellow actors, you think well, we're gonna be a team for life, you know? And when that last 
clapperboard goes down. We're, we're in this, right, guys? <laughs> of course, it's not possible because everyone goes on to the next job. Everyone has lives. And you can, um, you, you have to find ways to close it off. You have to find rituals or time. That's what I do to close it off. Because I really thought that, there, that this job came with aftercare. Mm. Um, and, and, and it doesn't. Mm. And there's no bad thing about that. It's just something it took me a very long time to, to work out. Mm -hmm. And I really hope now that I do make conscious efforts to, to make more space and time for those relationships in my life that hopefully will go a little bit further than two, three months on the clock. Um, yeah, I don't know how, I don't have children, so I think it's, it, it's a very specific mm -hmm. attitude mm -hmm. towards that switching off, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, were there other audience questions? Did anyone else have something they wanted to ask? Hi there, my name's Julie Slack, I'm an actor. And I just wrote a short film for myself that's now on the festival circuit. Woo, so, yeah. <laughs> so I was wondering, obviously some of you have produced your own work, but are any of you also writing? And if so, are you, how are you getting that written work um, to be looked at by your representatives or other people who can help you to get that produced? Zoe, you write. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, it's so interesting. I'm a writer director, so I do the two together, so may, you know, similar and different at the same time. Um, it's, it's so interesting going into a room and talking about a script that you've written versus a script that you plan to direct. Because I think when I write something, it's, you're so inside of the material that you find that you go into a meeting, you've been talking for half an hour, and everyone's like, yeah, but what is it about? You know? um, whereas directors go in, they're like, this is how it's going to look, this is how it's going to play, this is who's cast, where's the money? Um, so I think for me, I've really had to build a muscle of looking at my writing really objectively so that I can go into rooms and uh, describe my vision for it and, and have it sort of pop up in front of the people in that room rather than remain on the, on the page. And a, a, a lot of work that I do is I like to read scripts. I like to read other screenplays. I like to um, listen to directors talking about notes on how they directed something and pick up some of the language, you know, that you can use when you're in there as a writer so you don't get, like, all in your head. And um, so that, that's been the best thing for me. And, um, you know, I, I have representation, but before I did, I just sent all my writing out to competitions like you, like just didn't stop. Would hope that the person who turned me down maybe quit. And then when I reapplied the next year, it'd be like, this is a really fresh and interesting voice. I can't believe they said it was a you know, terrible, never to be picked up envelope. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, how, that's, how I, that's where I'm at at the moment. There's definitely something to be said for persistence. We were, I was at a dinner with Ava DuVernay. I think, David, you were there where she said she submitted to Sundance six times before she finally got in. So uh, stick with it is a good, is a good message. Could I, could I say something just, just very quickly about the work-life balance thing? Because um, it's, it's a really important one to me. I have four kids. And you know when you're, when you're in this business, even though I've said all this stuff about the price you pay, but I do think there's personally nothing greater than having a family. And I've been married for 20 years now. And my wife and I started with a non-negotiable that we've, been, we've managed to keep, which is that we would never be apart for more than two weeks. And that's something that people laughed at us over um, early on in our career. But we've, 
we've managed it. Mm. And as she likes to remind me when I was doing this film, Selma, she had to endure sleeping with Dr. King. Because uh, <laughs> I stayed in character for three months, so she paid the price as well. Um, but uh, uh, but, but the, the point being that actually what I have also found is that that is, has been a great barometer for what work I choose. Mm -hmm. Because actually, if anything is going to take me away from my family or anything is going to require that, that price, you know, it has to be special. And not everyone has that luxury. But there's a sort of chicken and egg thing where you go, oh, I have to do it for the money. But actually, when you pick really quality work, it's like I did a film um, called Lincoln. And I had one day on that film. But it was with my favorite actor, Daniel Day-Lewis, and Steven Spielberg directing. And I got more from that one day of shooting than I would have ever got from five badly written scripts that I just did because, you know, I just want to be an actor. And I mean, literally on that film, I got the template for how to play Dr. King, one day of filming. So my point being that I think sometimes we can think of having a family and those other things as being antithetical to being an actor. It's actually served me incredibly well. Um, you know, and has enriched my life and the characters I get to play and the experiences I get to have. And they are very good at keeping you humble as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just, I would just uh, add in that, uh, you know, I have five kids, so wow. I'm better than <laughs> <laughs> And my wife and I have a 13 days apart. <laughs> and, but you know, the point that you bring up, that, the point that you bring up is, I think, a really interesting one because I didn't have an expectation that, you know, most of my adult life I was a single guy in a filthy apartment in New York City. And I thought it was have a career or have a family. And I was going to have a career. And then I married this amazing woman, and we had these too many kids. <laughs> and, but you know, when you talk about it, that it does enrich your life. It's so true. And, and it does make it easier to turn down bad things. And you know, for me personally, you know, some of why I've done so many films in the past years, because I encountered a situation where, now it sounds like I'm manipulating this situation. I had a situation where my wife almost died, so I thought for sure I was going to retire from acting and stand-up. So I was like, all right, I'm done. And then she, everything worked out. And so then I was like, and then these amazing opportunities, whether it be Troop Zero or Them That Follow or Light From Light came in. And it was one of those things where I was faced with the fact that I, you know, I had an even greater appreciation because I was not going to outsource being the parent of five children. Um, so that's the balance. But it is the amount of guilt as a parent when you're working on a film set. You know, like the first day you're like, this is amazing, and then after that you're just like, I'm a horrible monster. So, <laughs> Um, I think we have time for one or two more questions. I see uh, someone in the back. Gentleman in the back. Yeah. Um, so this is kind of just a general question um, because everybody's experiences are so diverse. But 
Uh, I was wondering what the biggest sacrifice or like the hardest decision you had to make to get to this point in your career was. Biggest sacrifice. Wow. I don't know. I feel like for me growing up, it was sort of a choice between having a regular school life or pursuing, you know, a career. And when I was eight, I didn't really understand my two choices. <laughs> um, it was kind of, you know, I was having fun and then I was going to school and I was having fun. And, um, you know, luckily I stuck with it. But I think that was sort of the biggest challenge growing up was I'm not you know, I'm not hanging out with all the other kids. All the other kids are doing all this while, sure, this is cool and this is fun, but I sort of was missing out on that experience. And um, that messed with me a lot growing up. But I feel like now I wouldn't trade it for anything. Mm. I think I made the right choice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Good answer. Yeah. Anyone else have, a, have an observation about a, a sacrifice that they made for? I think the level of humiliation you just have to like, <laughs> the level of shit that has to be consumed <laughs> to keep your eye on, uh, you know, the goal is, it's insane. Like yeah. repeatedly doing something and expecting a different result <laughs> is insanity, yeah. right? And so, yeah. Um, yeah, I look back on like the amount of humiliation. I remember I was here with a film, uh, one time, you know, I got, I got a film in Sundance, and I was like, I'm going to Sundance, I'm going to Sundance. And, the, like, even at the, at the screening, they're like, oh, you're here? Like, they, because it was a smaller part. Right. And it was just like, but there's constant moments of humiliation. I feel like the entertainment industry is, come here, come here, come mm -hmm. here. You know? Yeah. So it's, and that never goes away. <laughs> Like, like it a, never goes. I'm like never. <laughs> it never gets better. I would say sanity, honestly, sanity. Like I, every part of me, uh, surrounding the business side or the leading up to doing a project, every part of my body says, nope. Like it just does not want to do it. It's terrified. And then I shoot one day, and I'm like, I love my job. <laughs> I love it. But. Uh, I don't know. There's there. It, sometimes I feel like I'm going against what's naturally happening inside right. of me to to do something that I know I love. Mm -hmm. But all the business side of it can, I don't know, it becomes something else. Yeah, yeah. Um, last question. Ooh, there's someone over here. Yeah. So David, I was just curious, if you're in character for three months, what's going on in your head when you're like taking direction or kind of having to move for a shot? What, how do you balance that if you're you know, so immersed in the character? So that's a great question. And when I, I really mean it when I say um, watching Daniel Day-Lewis play Lincoln really helped me. Because I did a film called Last King of Scotland where Forrest Whitaker played Idi Amin. And um, he stayed in character the whole time. And to be perfectly honest, when I went to drama school and left, and I thought, you know, the idea of being a method actor is like, <laughs> I'm a method actor. You know, and I just thought, that's just not for me. It sounds really pretentious. And then, um, and then I did this film, Last King of Scotland, and I heard that Forrest was staying in character. And I remember being in the hotel. He was, started, he was coming towards me, and I forgot this. And I went, hi, Forrest. And he went, bleh. <laughs> Like that literally growled at me. And I, 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 okay, I, I didn't speak for him, to him for the rest of the shoot. And I thought, well, I'm not doing that. Um, and then I, uh, and then I went with, 
with Daniel Day, because you know, I didn't spend enough time with Forrest to really get what he was doing, but I saw the film and the, the results were undeniable. Yeah. So then I, uh, then I worked with, with Daniel Day Lewis and I was playing the soldier who confronts him in this scene. And at one moment, it, it, was, it was like the, the curtain being, because Daniel Day Lewis is an astounding actor. And he came on set and he just was Abraham Lincoln. I, don't, I never met Abraham Lincoln, obviously, <laughs> but I saw him and I just thought, whoa, he is just emanating something incredible. And then this extraordinary thing happened where anyone who's been in films, they give you these sides at the beginning of the day of the lines you're doing. And he went. And I went, he's got sides? I, I thought he knew the lines from when he was born. You know, and he, he literally looked at the sides. Steven Spielberg came over. And as Abraham Lincoln said, oh, soldier, you're going to have the camera over there. And OK, good, got it. And I thought, how, what? He's the character talking to the director who's in today, but we're in 1860. And you know, it was like, oh, I, I see what's going on here, is that he is staying in the hemisphere of the character consistently because that's what I then went on to experience. Because it was the first time I did it was in Nightingale and then with Selma, whereby you do not question your choices as the character by just staying in that place. So that's how it works for me. I can't, I mean, everyone's different, but it's about staying in that place. I did have a very surreal moment when I was doing Selma, um, which was the height of where this can sometimes go for me. I was, we were staying in Atlanta while we were doing the film, and I put on 35 pounds to play the role. I'd shaved my hairline back. I'd been in, we were now about two and a half months into the shoot. And I got up in the morning, and I went to brush my teeth. And I looked in the mirror, and I couldn't find me, David me. And it was not a nice feeling. I, I, I kept on looking, and I, I could who am I? And I had to get out of the bathroom. And that was, thankfully, we only had about another two weeks of shooting, you know, because, man, it, it, it can get like that. But like with Forrest, like with Lincoln, hopefully for me, you just cannot deny that serving the character in that way does amount to something that, if I'm just in this English accent, by the way, also shooting in Atlanta, playing Dr. King, you come on set and you're about to do a speech to 300 people. Hello, everyone. I'm David. I'm playing Dr. King. Um, you know, <laughs> it's, it really doesn't engender confidence <laughs> in the congregation. So you better stay in character. So that, that helps as well. Well, thank you all so much for being here with us today. Thank you, guys. Thank you.